On today's episode, we have two classics from very different ends of the spectrum, starting with Superman from 1978 and The Philadelphia Story from 1940. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we got a couple of classics but you know i wanted to talk first about you know since we're talking about superman here i kind of want to go through superman's history in film and tv and i just you know it starts off with the max fleischer cartoons from the 1940s and these cartoons were way ahead of their time their animation style was amazing and it was just like they really captured a lot of detail that you didn't see and i mean you still don't see it in a lot of cartoons these days and then there was adventures of superman with george reeves and that ran from 1952 to 1958 And then we got the movie Superman from 1978, followed by Superman 2 in 1980, Superman 3 in 1983, which was a legitimately awful movie. And if you ever get a chance, you know, check out How Did This Get Made's episode on Superman 3. It's rather entertaining. It was actually their first live show, and I really enjoy it. It's, I mean, it's a great podcast in general, but definitely check out that episode. And then we had Supergirl from 1984, which was honestly just an underwhelming piece of shit. I didn't really like it. And then we had Superman 4, The Quest for Peace from 1987. And that one was also pretty terrible. And it was, it just, my goodness, they really didn't do a good job with it at all. Then there was Superboy from 1988 to 1992, and I don't know if that was like an animated show or what. I just saw it on the list, and I thought, that's interesting. And then we got Lois and Clark, the New Adventures of Superman show from 1993 to 1997, and that was all right. I seem to remember liking it as a kid, but I don't really think it'd be a good idea to go back and revisit because I don't know if it's actually that good of a show. And then next up, we have Superman the Animated Series, which ran from 96 to 2000, and that one was a pretty solid show. I I haven't gotten through all of it, but I have watched a decent amount of episodes for it, and it's, it's pretty good. It's, you know, it's in the same vein as, it's basically a Superman version of Batman the Animated Series, and, you know, that's That's good stuff. I mean, Batman the Animated Series is solid. And then we had Smallville, which was a show that ran from 2001 to 2011, and it starred Tom Welling as young Clark Kent. And then for the next movie we had come out, it was Superman Returns from 2006, and that had Brandon Routh as Clark Kent slash Superman, and it was supposed to be like he'd been away for five years or something like that, and it was just, basically, it was trying to be like a love letter to the original Superman movies, and it was just, it fell flat pretty bad in a lot of ways, and a lot of people really didn't like it at all, but I, you know, I never thought it was that terrible, I just thought it 
wasn't that great either. So next up, we have Man of Steel from 2013, and that starred Henry Cavill as Clark Kent slash Superman. You know, he he's good. He That movie was pretty decent. There was a lot of, like, over-the-top, basically guys throwing each other across cities and towns into buildings and things like that and it was it wasn't incredible but it wasn't like the worst thing I'd ever seen either and I mean we didn't really in that movie get a chance to see Henry Cavill as Clark Kent much so it was like you you didn't or at least you didn't see him as you know him in the comics and in the other iterations of the character where he's a reporter and he's you know doing this and that and he's being all nerdy and stuff then we got Supergirl, which was a TV show that premiered in 2015. I don't know. I think it might still be on the air. And I watched a few episodes of that. It was okay. I wasn't really into it. And then we got Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice from 2016. And, you know, that one was just, it was not, it wasn't what it wanted to be. It was just basically like a really overloaded plot. And, you know, most people I talk to, I mean, obviously this is going to be my opinion, but most people I talk to say that the Batman portion of that movie was the best part and was really what a lot of people liked about the movie. Superman was just kind of secondary, I felt like. And then we had Justice League from 2017 and Zack Snyder's Justice League from 2021. And basically, the original theatrical release of Justice League was really rushed. And, you know, like Zack Snyder had to leave in the middle of filming. And it was like, Basically, they had Joss Whedon come in and finish the movie, and it just, it didn't come out good. It was not that good at all. And it was like, you know, basically there were just, there was nothing to it really. Like, it was not at all compelling or anything. And then when Zack Snyder, you know, there there was a big push for him to release his cut of the movie, and it's like, he came out with it on HBO, and it was almost four hours long, if I recall correctly, and it was it was a pretty solid story. I mean, there was a lot more to it, obviously, so it was like, you got a lot of story threads that actually, like, you saw go all the way through till their finish, and in the original cut, you didn't see any of that, so it was it was definitely better from that standpoint. It was just way too long, and the other thing I didn't like about it was it was shot in a 4-3 aspect ratio, and I really prefer the widescreen format just because, you know, that's what you get in movie theaters and stuff, so it's just a lot better, I feel like. And then last but not least, we have Superman and Lois, which was a show that debuted in 2021 and I haven't seen this one and it doesn't really look that interesting I don't really know that I care to watch it I don't really know if it's I haven't really heard anything about it at all so it's like yeah I'm not too crazy about the idea of watching that so I guess after all of that I will just start off by saying we're going to be covering Superman released on December 15th 1978 directed by Richard Donner he made a movie called The Omen in 1976 and that was legitimately awful it was like about this little kid that's possessed by Satan and he's you know really evil and basically you know, less than halfway into that movie, I was already like, okay, this movie needs to get the fuck over with, you know, like, that was, that was where I was at with it, and then he made Lady Hawk, which was not my cup of tea as a movie, really, but Michelle Pfeiffer was definitely crush-worthy in that movie, I really liked her in it, he did the Lethal Weapon movies, and, you know, 
basically they really vary in quality. I mean, I would say they probably just get progressively worse with each installment. And you also have to kind of get past the fact that Mel Gibson's not really a good person and you're supporting him if you support those movies. And he also made 16 Blocks, which is a movie with Bruce Willis and Most Def. And I really just, I feel like I need to revisit that one. I haven't seen it in a long time, like since the year it came out or something like that. So um, for writers, we have Mario Puzo, Dan Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton. And for the story by credit, we have Mario Puzo, and he actually wrote the book for The Godfather. So, I mean, that's pretty fucking stellar. And obviously Superman is based on the popular DC action comic books character originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. So for the producer, we have Pierre Spangler, but for the executive producers, we have Ilya and Alexander Salkind. And these two idiots would go on to fucking destroy this film franchise with their overall money-grubbing bullshit. And But they did pretty good with the first two films. I mean, they just made a lot of bad decisions going forward from those two and it was not very well received by the public. For the score we have composer John Williams and he is the greatest film composer of all time and he did a bunch of Steven Spielberg movies, the main Star Wars trilogies, Home Alone and you know guys I'm gonna be honest I'm gonna be covering a lot of John Williams movies and I can't go over all of his movies every time but they're pretty much all amazing especially the scores. So for the cast, we have Christopher Reeve, who plays Clark Kent slash Superman. And he was in a movie called Somewhere in Time with Jane Seymour. And it was probably one of the most unmemorable films I've ever watched. It just really didn't do much for me. But it was partially shot at Mackinac Island in Michigan. And Michigan is my home state. So, you know, I, I really like that aspect of it. He was in Superman 2 through 4. And he actually had a lot of creative input in Superman 4 originally. But when the film tested well at some of its first few screenings, Canon Films thought that they had a hit on their hands and decided to cut the runtime of the film by a lot. And most of the story went out the window with that. So obviously a great call on their part to just basically destroy what could have been a really good movie. Then we have Gene Hackman, who plays Lex Luthor. And he was in Young Frankenstein, previously covered on this podcast, and definitely worth checking out if you haven't already. He was in Enemy of the State with Will Smith, and I really need to revisit that one too. I seem to remember it being pretty fucking solid and really thrilling, so I, I'm, I think I'll go back to that one someday. Then we have Marlon Brando, who plays Jarrell, and he was in A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront, and I really need to rewatch those two because. I haven't seen them in fucking forever, and I remember zero about those movies. He was also in The Godfather, which is an all-time classic, and, you know, he plays The Godfather, and it's a legitimately awesome movie. The first two Godfather movies are some of the best movies ever made. And then he was in Apocalypse Now, and I've got to say, I absolutely fucking detest Apocalypse Now. And the book it's based on, Heart of Darkness by, I think it's Joseph Conrad. It's just such a fucking slow story, and it's just not for me. I don't really get the appeal of it. So then we have Margot Kidder, who plays Lois Lane, and she was not really in much of note other than Superman movies. And then we have Ned Beatty, who plays Otis, and Jackie Cooper, who plays Perry White. For the casting notes, now, 
obviously, this movie was a huge deal when it was coming out, and there were a lot of actors being considered for different roles and things like that, so forgive me, I have quite a long list of names to read off, but it's just to show you what a big deal it was. So, Muhammad Ali, Al Pacino, James Caan, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Burt Reynolds, Sylvester Stallone, Paul Newman, Patrick Wayne, who is John Wayne's son, Caitlyn Jenner, Neil Diamond, Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Brolin, Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, John Voight, Warren Beatty, and Charles Bronson all either auditioned were considered for or were offered the part of Superman. Ultimately, over 200 actors auditioned for the role. So Christopher Reeve was actually an unknown actor at the time of this movie being released, and the credits in nearly every trailer for this film list Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman before Reeve, who played Superman, but... Honestly, it was the same way with Batman from 1989. Like, Nicholson got top billing over Keaton, and I don't really know that it says much. It's just you're going to go with the more established actor when you're making your credits, you know? So Christopher Lee had to turn down the role of General Zod. He had just moved to Hollywood as a tax exile and did not want to have to return to England. The role ultimately went to Terrence Stamp. George Kennedy, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, and Gene Wilder were considered for the role of Lex Luthor. Nicholson, who went on to play the Joker in Batman from 1989, was considered to play Luthor in a Superman film project in the 1990s that was ultimately shelved. So for a plot synopsis, we have... A lone child evacuated from a dying planet comes to Earth where the sun and atmosphere give him amazing powers. Taking on a superhero persona, he must stop an evil villain plotting to destroy some of the most populous parts of California. Alright guys, let's dive right into this fucking plot. I'm so excited. I love this fucking movie. So... We get this weird featurette at the beginning about how important the Daily Planet newspaper was for the city of Metropolis in the 1930s, and they're like thumbing through an action comics book, but it's it's very weird. I don't really know why that's in this movie, honestly. Like, they, they didn't really need it. And then we get this epic credit sequence, and it, you know, kicks in, and we get the John Williams score showcased, and it's like, basically, we're just looking out into space, and we're seeing all the names of the cast and crew and everything, and, I mean, it's, it, there's not really much to it, but it's just, you really get this Superman theme blasting through, and it's fucking awesome. So, we go to Krypton, which is such an epic locale, and there's such cliche futurism in its sets, and the wardrobe, it's like, it's just what I picture when I think of movies trying to be futuristic now, you know? But the planet looks like a city of ice structures, basically, and it really doesn't actually seem very inhabitable, if I'm being honest, but, you know, whatever. And you really have no idea why, if you're a first-time viewer, but we watched the trial of criminals Ursa Nan and General Zod, and we just have to expect them to show up down the line sometime. And this movie was shot mostly at the same time as Superman 2, and these three criminals are actually the main villains in that movie. So I highly recommend the Donner cut of Superman 2 if you decide to watch the sequel, because they originally fired Richard Donner midway through that movie and had to change a ton of it for Richard Lester to get full directing credit. 
So Donner's version is actually a little choppy since he was forced to splice it back together with sometimes incomplete footage, but it's actually vastly superior to Lester's theatrical release. I must also note in this moment, so we see Jarrell, played by Marlon Brando, and he's at this trial for these three criminals, and, you know, he basically just pronounces Krypton incorrectly. He says Krypton every fucking time he says the name of the planet, and it just drives me absolutely fucking bonkers. I absolutely hate it. But basically, Jarrell explains that you know, these three are just awful people, and he helps sentence them to life in the Phantom Zone. And, it, you know, the giant dome where the trial has been happening opens up, and this mirror or sheet of glass or whatever it is comes down, and somehow the three criminals are captured inside of it as a prison. And it's actually pretty cool, and I, I saw recently a cosplay of this, and they, you know, they did a really good job of it. It was basically, like, three people that were under a plastic, like a sheet of plastic, and it was made to look like they were inside of this fucking mirror thing. So after the trial and imprisonment, Jarrell is being questioned as he suggests to his peers that Krypton will explode soon, and the planet needs to be evacuated immediately. They shoot down Jarrell's claims and say he's misinterpreting what he sees, and it's like, alright buddy, I mean, if you don't want to fucking listen to him. So they make him agree not to create unnecessary panic, and he says neither he nor his wife will leave the planet. Jarrell makes arrangements with his wife to evacuate their infant son, Kal-El, to Earth in a space probe, and when his wife asks why he has chosen Earth, Jarrell says that the Earth's atmosphere and yellow sun will give him superhuman abilities, but he will look like a regular human, basically. And I don't know how Jarrell knows about this with Earth, you know, like, that it's going to give him all of these abilities, but it seems like other Kryptonians who know about that might try and exploit that, but maybe nobody else knows about it, who knows. So the planet begins to explode, as Jarrell predicted, and they send little Kal-El off, and in the long journey, Kal-El learns about Krypton and Earth and other important rules, education, and values through lessons implanted by Jarrell in the probe. We see Krypton getting fucking wrecked as little Kal-El is jettisoned away. And this kid is traveling for a fucking long-ass time in this probe. And I've got to say, I think I would go fucking insane riding that long with no control over the probe whatsoever. Like, I'd really want to have something that I could be doing. So he finally arrives at Earth and is discovered by an older married couple, Jonathan and Martha Kent, who know he's probably not from the planet because of the way he arrived. And we see what has to be a three- to five-year-old kid, and they show his dick for some reason. Like, his his penis is just hanging out there like, hey, and it's like, we don't. why do we need that? We don't need to see that. You could just do the shot so you don't see that low on his, like, below his waist, you know? I... It's very bizarre. I don't know why they made that decision. So there's a little bit of exposition about Pa Kent. You know, he's working on his truck and Martha warns him about what the doctor says about his heart and he just kind of ignores it. And Martha wants to keep little Kal-El as their own child, especially after they see him lift the truck all by himself. So they name little Kal-El Clark Kent. So that'll be his Earth name now and that'll be what I'm referring to him as. So fast forward over 10 years, and Clark's in high school. 
He gets offered a chance to hang out with his crush, Lana Lang, but he gets stuck cleaning up after the football team, and he gets super fucking bitter, and he kicks this fucking football seemingly into orbit, and apparently they accomplish this by shooting the what looks like a football out of a cannon and it's like holy shit like i i don't i don't know it looks it looks pretty fucking good it doesn't look wonky or anything so it's pretty solid but we see some of clark's abilities like outrunning a train to get home and beating lana and the gang to where they're going and you know i was going to wait for the trivia section to talk about this but i just can't fucking wait so jeff east plays teenage Clark Kent, and they desperately wanted to have a younger actor play Clark at this age, but still evoke Christopher Reeve, and so they made East go through three to four hours of makeup every day to look more like Reeve, and the worst thing is, they had Christopher Reeve re-record Jeff East's lines, and they dubbed over what he says in the movie, so like, Jeff East's lips are moving, but you're hearing Christopher Reeve's voice the whole time. And to make matters worse, no one actually ever told Jeff East that they were doing this with his dialogue at all. And he didn't find out until the movie actually premiered. And it's like, can you fucking imagine? Like, you have to think he was mighty fucking pissed off. Although I've never really seen, like, any interviews or anything with him. And he didn't go on to have a huge career, I don't think. But it's like, wow, they really fucking did him dirty. There are extended editions of this movie where you can hear his real voice. And they would have been just fucking fine using his voice. I don't really see what the problem was. So Clark and his Earth dad talk about his abilities and why he needs to keep them secret, and Pa Kent says that they were afraid that when he was little, that someone would come and take him if they figured out what he could do. And after this important discussion between father and son, we promptly get a payoff on Jonathan Kent's heart issues, and Jonathan suddenly dies of a heart attack right in the driveway at their old farmhouse. And obviously his death devastates the family, and they have a funeral and all of that. And Clark says something at the funeral. It's a really great quote, reflecting on the death that, you know, it really resonates with me. He says, all those things I could do, all those powers, and I couldn't even save him. I don't, I don't know why I really enjoy it. So Clark is awakened in the middle of the night by a feeling, and he kind of just gets up and goes to the barn where they stashed a piece from his spaceship when he was a child. And it's this green crystal, which is really fucking confusing because we find out later that this is what kryptonite, the substance that is lethal to Superman, looks like. And they could have pretty much just rendered this crystal any other fucking color, but they didn't. So for some reason, Clark just knows he has to leave, so he sets up Ma Kent with someone to help out on the farm, and so Clark goes north to the Arctic, and at this icy opening, he just fucking straight up chucks the crystal off into the distance, and this creates the Fortress of Solitude, as it is later known, and looks much like something from Krypton. Clark goes inside, and through some Kryptonian magic, he is able to see and communicate with his biological dad, Jarrell through holograms and he uses the crystals and activates the whole thing and his dad has pre-recorded several things to answer his son's questions and things like that Jarrell really deep dives the history his son needs to know and he specifically mentions that it is forbidden for Clark to interfere with human history 
and remember that because that comes back in a big way. So we obviously get bits and pieces of Jarrell's lessons, and when he's finally done, we get a teensy little glimpse of Superman in full costume, but I think it's actually still Jeff East in this moment. But I'm not, I, you don't really get a good look at him. I think it is, though, because he seems smaller. So we're to understand that Clark is now heading to Metropolis to get a job, and he's seemingly gotten older. At the Daily Planet newspaper, we see reporter Lois Lane and photographer Jimmy Olsen and then editor-in-chief Perry White. And, you know, they're all just working and all of this stuff. And we get this ongoing bit about Lois being terrible at spelling. And I feel like if that's your job, you need to fucking get better at it than she is. Like, way better than she is. So we see Christopher Reeve for the first time as Clark Kent. So he's supposed to have aged a significant amount, obviously. And I gotta say, Reeve is just fucking masterful in this movie as Clark Kent and Superman. Like, these two characters, the way he portrays them, they're two sides of the same coin, and they are just night and day difference in acting. You know, like, and he's got to be a completely different person. So, Clark is deliberately so fucking dorky, and he really does a great job of owning it. And Lois is frequently overlooking Clark pretty much immediately when he's hired. And she's not really thinking much of him, you know? it's He's just a nice six-and-a-half-foot-tall, handsome, blue-eyed guy. I mean, who gives a shit, right? Lois and Clark go out on the streets after work, and they get stopped by a mugger. And the mugger has a gun and gets them to hand over their valuables. And Lois decides to push her luck by giving the mugger a hard time when handing over her purse. In the subsequent scuffle, the man fires a shot at the two of them, and Clark catches the bullet in his hand and plays it off like he's just reacting, you know? And the mugger runs off in confusion, and, you know, Clark just kind of acts like he fainted in all the excitement. So elsewhere... We get these fucking two detectives that begin pursuing a man named Otis. And we don't really know what Otis's deal is, but they say that they think that Otis will lead them to the big guy, Lex Luthor. And they follow the oblivious Otis down eventually onto the subway tracks. And and so Lex Luthor is watching on closed circuit surveillance and has special devices in place to deter such overly curious people like these cops. He kills the cop that was following Otis most closely with a trick door that pushes him in front of a moving subway train. And we see Lex played by Gene Hackman finally. Like, we weren't seeing his face, and then all of a sudden we do. And we also see Miss Eve Tessmacher played by Valerie Perrine, who I have noted here is actually an underrated hottie. And the credits say that her name is Eve Tessmacher, but it Sounds like they're saying Tessmacher without the H sound in it. So I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that because it's like I want to pronounce it right, but I feel like they're pronouncing it wrong in the movie. So Lex has this underground fortress surrounded by subways and Lex reads a newspaper about these two nuclear missiles and he intends to use these missiles in his insidious plot. But back at the Daily Planet, Clark asks Lois if she'd like to get dinner. She says that she's got plans. She's going to the airport since Air Force One is coming in and she's going to interview the president or something. Clark is just generally dismissed by pretty much fucking everyone around him and it's 
even if he's like saying hello, you know, they just kind of ignore him. So Lois goes up to the roof for her helicopter ride to the airport and it's super fucking windy. And as they're taking off, some cables on the helipad get loose and entangle with the bottom of the helicopter. And the helicopter goes into this tailspin and they can't regain control of it. And now I'm no helicopter pilot, but I would think that the best choice here at the first sign of what's happening would be to simply just kill the aircraft's power right away to prevent flying around and going haywire, you know? Like, seems pretty reasonable. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Maybe you can't do that as easily as I think you could. But they don't do that, and they end up dangling from the cables that ensnared them on the edge of the building. And so basically they're, you know, hanging way up high on this fucking building. And Lois's door opens in the helicopter and I I guess she took off her seatbelt trying to get to safety and she ends up hanging onto the seatbelt for fucking dear life and this is probably like my favorite scene of this whole fucking movie it is so well done I just absolutely love it so down below Clark emerges from the first floor entrance and everyone's watching and they're really alarmed by this terrifying situation that's going on overhead And he realizes what's happening, and immediately he runs off to change into his Superman costume. And in a little nod to some of the older Superman works where the character liked to change in phone booths, we see Clark briefly look at a bank of payphones, and it's like, he basically is just like, yep, not going to be able to use those. And so... Since they don't have any phone booths, he opts for the ultra-cool revolving door and spins it around super fast several times and emerges from the door at the end, fully changed into his Superman suit. So he quickly flies up, and we see that Lois has lost her grasp of the seatbelt and is free-falling like Tom Petty, and... Superman saves her in midair and everyone on the ground is like, what in the actual fuck is going on right now? What is happening? It's this great moment where Superman says to Lois, I've got you. And she like looks around in confusion and she's like, you've got me. Who's got you? And so, you know, then the helicopter falls and Superman calmly catches it and brings it to a rest on the roof. And You know, Superman just assures Lois that this incident shouldn't put her off of flying because, statistically speaking, it's still the safest way to travel because, deep down, Superman is still a fucking nerd. So, when he goes to fly away, she asks him who he is, and he just says, a friend, before taking off. Then we get this handful of scenes watching Superman doing Superman shit, such as stopping a jewel thief, climbing on the outside of a building with suction cups. He intervenes in a shootout and chase with some bad guys where the police are after them, but the bad guys board a boat and seemingly get away. And one of the bad guys sneaks up on Superman when he shows up on the boat and hits him with a crowbar and it does nothing but vibrate, you know? And Superman takes the bad guys with the entire boat and leaves them on the street in front of police headquarters. He then saves a little girl's cat from a fucking tree. And the little girl goes back inside and tells her mom what happened with Superman. And the mom legitimately says, didn't I tell you to stop telling lies? And then you hear her like beating this girl. And it's like, oh my God. Like, yeah, that would not be in a fucking movie nowadays at all. And then he ends up going and finally he saves Air Force One when they lose an engine on their way into the airport in this bad weather. And so, you know, he's he's basically just 
flying in place of the engine to hold the plane and keep it steady. So it's it's pretty it's a pretty cool couple of instances of Superman doing his stuff. So as much as I love this movie and I've seen it so many times, I'm always shocked by how long it actually takes to get Superman full on in this fucking movie. Like I just it it's like almost an hour into this movie that we actually finally see him doing stuff. So I'm also shocked that there's over an hour to go at this point. It's like, what else is there to do? Oh, right, right. There's a fucking plot. There's a main plot of this movie. So Lex Luthor immediately starts plotting a way to take out Superman when he reads about him in the newspapers. Perry White tells the staff to figure out all they can about the guy because no one knows jack shit about him. Lois gets an invitation from Superman to do an interview, and she is so over the fucking moon about it because she's also got a bit of a schoolgirl crush on him. So we get this interview, and Lois is all fucking dolled up, and it's nighttime, and she's overdressed, and she asks Superman some basic questions like what his relationship status is, age, height, weight, and bodily functions, things like that. And he deliberately doesn't answer some questions specifically to prevent people from knowing too much. And we find out he can see through almost anything and is seemingly impervious to pain. And Lois flirtily asks what color underwear she's wearing. And she thinks that she's embarrassing him, but it turns out that she's actually standing behind this planter that's made of lead and he can't see through lead. And so he tells her that and... That just kind of seems like the kind of thing that you wouldn't really want to have anybody know about. So, you know, naturally that comes back later on. So she asks him where he's from and they keep flirting with each other. And she asks why he's there and he says he's there to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. And Superman offers to take her flying and she reluctantly agrees and, you know, they go flying all over the city. It's very romantic. And at one point, I guess they decide that they're going to see if Lois can fly alone. And she, of course, begins plummeting to the earth naturally and has to be saved. And so we hear Lois's inner monologue during the sequence. It sounds fucking batshit crazy, but apparently they were actually going to originally have her sing the words, and that would have been so fucking bad, I can't even fucking imagine. When Superman drops her off back at the apartment, Lois also conveniently just thinks of calling him Superman. He didn't have an official name just yet. So Superman leaves, and suddenly Clark is knocking at her door, and Clark is waiting for her to get ready, and he contemplates blowing his cover for her and decides against it. So Lex and Miss Eve Teschmacher read and analyze the article Lois wrote the next day about her night with Superman, and we get this great quote from Lex that was actually referenced in Ready Player One, and he says, Some people can read War and Peace and come away thinking it's a simple adventure story. Others can read the ingredients on a chewing gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. It's fucking great. So... Lex devises a plan based on the notion of when Krypton exploded that suggests that fragments of the planet are likely to have drifted to Earth somehow. And I feel like this is not a wholly reasonable assumption, but it works for the movie's purposes, so I don't really question it too much. So they find out that a meteorite was discovered in Addis Ababa, and somehow they ascertained that the rock contained within would be lethal to Superman. FYI, this lethal substance is called kryptonite. Lex plans to encase the kryptonite in lead to hide it from Superman. So 
we get to see this whole production with fucking Lex and Otis and Eve interrupting these nuclear missile transports so that they can change the coordinates that they're configured to. And you still really don't know what the plan is just yet. I might say that if I was editing this movie, I probably would have cut a lot of this shit with the missiles, but it adds some comic relief, you know, with them changing the coordinates and everything. So... I'll explain it briefly. Like, Lex drives a full-size car by remote control and makes it crash on the road in the way of the transport of the missile, and they stage a scantily clad Eve as a victim of the car wreck to distract the military officers, and while the transport is stopped, Otis is entrusted to sneak on and properly input the new codes like Lex would ever fucking trust Otis with anything ever. As they drive away, they shockingly find out that Otis set the missile to the wrong fucking coordinates, so they have to stop the transport again and fix the error, and then they have Eve put in the correct coordinates, so I guess everything turns out okay with all of that. So anyway, Lois is interviewing a man in the desert who just sold his seemingly worthless land to an unnamed man, and no one seems to really know what motivated it. We get Perry White talking about this story where the three villains broke into the museum in Addis Ababa to steal the kryptonite, and Lex interrupts Clark's convo with Perry by using a special frequency that could only be heard by canines and Kryptonians, and Lex gets Superman to come to his underground lair, and when Superman arrives, he's pretty fucking heated talking to Lex like he just doesn't like him. We see the missiles launch while they're talking, and Lex explains his plan to destroy the land west of the San Andreas Fault, thus causing the desert land that Lex has mysteriously purchased to skyrocket in value. So, one missile heads for the fault line to destroy part of California, and the other heads to Hackensack, New Jersey, to basically divide them up so Superman can't stop both of them. So Lex lets on that he has a detonator that would destroy both of the missiles, and Superman uses his x-ray vision to scan the room and realizes one container is encased in lead, and so he rushes to open it, and Lex warns him not to, but Superman ignores him naturally. And when he opens the box, the kryptonite meteorite that is lethal to Superman in some way is inside. Couple of things. It's unclear just how lethal the kryptonite is to him. It only really seems to stop him in his tracks and make him lose strength. But we don't really know just how bad it is. Like, it's supposed to be radioactive material from Krypton, so I guess I don't really know how humans react to radioactivity on Earth. Is it like instantaneous death in some cases, or you know what? I mean, I don't really think so, but I don't know. So the other thing is, is he seems to have the power to stand up after discovering the kryptonite. Why not use what little strength he has left to just close the lid on the box and save himself? But I guess it's a movie, so I guess we have to accept that this is just what happens. So I gotta say, Gene Hackman is a really great eccentric villain. I still maintain that Telly Savalas would have made a great Lex Luthor as well, but I don't even think he was ever considered. I just, he has the look and he sounds like him, and I think he would have the right demeanor because Gene Hackman is a little too lighthearted and jokey, and Lex Luthor is like dead serious in most iterations of the character. So, 
Lex dumps Superman in his swimming pool with the kryptonite chained around him, and we find out that Eve's mom actually lives in Hackensack where the other missile is headed, and quickly she frees Superman from the kryptonite while Lex is away so Superman can go and stop the missiles. She makes him promise to save the Hackensack missile first, and he will because Superman never tells a lie. As she goes to free him, Eve sneaks a little kiss from Superman because she didn't think that he'd let her later, basically. So Superman goes off to stop the missiles. Meanwhile, Lois is driving in the desert and her car is running out of gas. And Jimmy is at the top of the Hoover Dam, which is not an ideal location to be in when a quake's about to hit. So Superman stops the first missile, but the second missile hits the fault line and the earthquakes start. And so we get awesome imagery of like the Golden Gate Bridge getting wrecked and people are helplessly clinging to life everywhere as they feel the effects of this earthquake. And Superman's rushing to save everyone, but he can't be everywhere fast enough. And the Hoover Dam is actually falling apart, and it's pretty fucking cool. And Jimmy is there clinging to life. So Superman saves him at the last second and blocks the water rushing out of the dam from engulfing a town by putting down a bunch of boulders in its path and just damming it that way. So Lois finally stalls out in the middle of the desert and the ground is opening beneath the car and it takes the car under and the car starts filling with dirt and I just feel like Lois dies way too fucking quickly and easily in this moment. Like she's not even completely like the car isn't even full of dirt. She's still exposed. She could still be breathing like I just don't buy this. And so anyway... Superman was too busy saving the village from the rushing water and couldn't get to Lois in time, and he comes back to find a dead Lois, and let's just say he doesn't take it super well. He's very emotional in this moment as he lays her lifeless body down, and he has the most epic fucking freak out before flying into space. But before he does anything, Jarrell comes to him in a vision and kindly reminds him that it is forbidden for him to interfere with human history. But Superman is like, fuck you, hold my beer, and I guess just flies around the planet so rapidly that the Earth travels back in time. And you must be thinking, with as fast as he travels around the Earth, he could have easily stopped both missiles before impact the first time. And I say, well, maybe he couldn't go that fast inside the Earth's atmosphere, bro. Did you ever think of that? There's wind resistance and stuff. So Superman prevents all of the shit that happened with the missiles, and he then comes and finds a very alive and whiny Lois, and then just as Superman and Lois are about to kiss, Jimmy shows up bitching about how Superman left him in the middle of the desert, and I guess people are pretty fucking unappreciative, like... He basically was getting you to a safe location or a safer location than you were, Jimmy. You know, I mean, you can't be thankful for that. So Superman flies away and he brings Lex and Otis directly to a prison because I guess they don't get a trial. And apparently since Eve Teschmacher helped Superman, she's acquitted of all wrongdoing, even though she played her part in putting in the coordinates for the missiles and all that stuff, but whatever. So Superman cheerfully and casually flies around the Earth, and the fucking credits roll, and it's over. I love it so fucking much. So praise for this movie. Christopher Reeve, 
how much he sells both characters is not to be understated in this movie. The theme song really gives me the chills. John Williams is firing on all cylinders here. The epic origin story and the initial encounter with a supervillain is just fucking great. It's really well executed. My only criticism is they could have probably trimmed quite a bit of fat with editing, you know? I mean, they could have really cut some stuff out of this movie and just brought the runtime down a little bit. So for trivia, we have to obtain the musculature to convincingly play Superman, Christopher Reeve underwent a bodybuilding regime supervised by David Prowse, the man who played Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. Clark Kent and Superman's hair part on opposite sides. Christopher Reeve worked out so much during the making of this film that the traveling matte shots taken of him at the beginning of the shoot did not match the later shots and they had to be retaken. Initially, Gene Hackman refused to cut off his mustache to play Lex Luthor. In some early one-sheets of the movie, his face actually is featured with a mustache. Before Richard Donner and Hackman met face-to-face, -face, Donner proposed to Hackman that if he would cut off his mustache, Donner would cut his too, and Hackman agreed. It turned out later that Donner did not have a mustache at all. Pretty fucking sneaky, dick. Marlon Brando was paid $3.7 million, plus a percentage of the gross, for 12 days of shooting. The payment also covered the sequel, which was shot at the same time. Brando did not appear in the sequel because he'd sued Ilya Salkind, claiming Salkind had not paid him his percentage of the profits. He ultimately received about $14 million for 10 minutes of screen time. The footage shot for the sequel was used in Superman Returns from 2006. The film was planned in three years and shot in two, and at the height of filming, over 1,000 full-time crew on 11 units were spread over three studios and eight countries. Over 1 million feet of film was used, and it had the highest production budget of any film at the time. The original Superman costume was going to be a much darker blue, but this became transparent with the blue screen used for the visual effects. The original script for this movie was 500 pages long, and Richard Donner fucking hated it. So, as I mentioned, Donner and the Salkinds constantly fought over the film's budget, and the Salkinds ultimately fired Donner more than midway through shooting Superman 2, and... You know, I think the loss of Richard Donner is really what did this franchise in. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 143 minutes, budget 55 million, opening weekend 7.5 million, worldwide gross 300.5 million, IMDb rating 7.4, Rotten Tomato Critics score 93%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 86%, personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I absolutely fucking adore this movie. I realize, you know, everybody knows me as more of a big Batman fan, but I absolutely love this movie. I can't get enough of it. I watch it all the time. The only movie I watch more than this is Batman from 1989, and, you know, that's, that's really saying something. So, moving on to The Philadelphia Story, released on December 5th, 1940, directed by George Cukor, written by Donald Ogden Stewart, produced by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, for the score, we have composer Franz Waxman. For the cast, we have James Stewart, and he played Macaulay Mike Connor. And he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is an all-time great. I absolutely adore it. It's a Frank Capra movie. And, you know, he, he basically 
plays this guy who has to like go to Washington and fight for his cause and all this. I mean, it's a really good one. I would definitely check that one out. And then It's a Wonderful Life was previously covered on this podcast as one of my favorite movies of all time. I still adore it to this day. I can't get enough of it. It's just such a great story. I really love it. He was in Rear Window, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and that's also one of my favorite movies of all time. I really love Jimmy Stewart quite a bit. That one is about a guy who is, he has a leg injury and he starts watching people around his apartment complex and starts to see some unsavory things going on. You know, it's it's pretty interesting. He was also in Vertigo, which is another Alfred Hitchcock movie. He did four in total with Alfred Hitchcock. And then he was in Anatomy of a Murder, which was shot partially in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where I lived for about five years. It's That's a solid just courtroom drama type movie. It's a really good one. And then for the last one, it's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's a movie with... Him and John Wayne and Lee Marvin, and it is a great movie. It's definitely my favorite Western of all time. If you're ever in the mood for a Western, I would absolutely check it out. Then we have Katherine Hepburn, who plays Tracy Samantha Lord, and she was in Bringing Up Baby, and she is fucking obnoxious in that goddamn movie. She was in The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart, and that one was a very good movie. It's about, you know, him and him and her go down this river. I, I don't know if it's the Nile River in Africa, but it's, you know, they're basically just, they run into all sorts of trouble, obviously, and all that fun stuff. She was in Rooster Cogburn with John Wayne, and that was a sequel to the movie True Grit, She was also in the movie On Golden Pond with Henry Fonda, and that one is very good. You know, she was obviously quite a bit older in that one. It was in the 80s. So, I mean, that one's definitely solid. Totally worth checking out. Then we have Cary Grant, who plays C.K. Dexter Haven, and he was in the movie His Girl Friday, which I don't really get the appeal of, but it's very well regarded. He was in North by Northwest, previously covered on this podcast. Arsenic and Old Lace, which is legitimately one of the worst movies I've watched. Like, it was trying to be like a dark comedy, and it just was not doing it for me at all. He was in To Catch a Thief, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and he was also in Charade, which is in public domain and I may eventually cover it on this podcast. I think I've mentioned that before, but it's definitely one of those ones that it's a it's a good movie, so it, it would be worth covering. Then we have Ruth Hussey, who plays Liz Embry, John Howard, who plays George Kittredge, Roland Young, who plays Uncle Willie. So casting notes, just one. Hepburn wanted Clark Gable to play Dexter Haven and Spencer Tracy to play Mike Connor, but both had other commitments. For a plot synopsis, we have, With her wedding approaching, a wealthy socialite must juggle feelings for her fiancé, her lingering ex-husband, and the reluctant reporter tasked with writing a story about her. Alright, let's dive into this one. So... At the beginning of the movie, we witness this like super bitter breakup in progress that we later find out was a divorce between Tracy Lord and C.K. Dexter Haven. And then we see that two years have passed and Catherine Hepburn, I've got to say, is just so remarkably confident, especially in her earlier roles. She just carries herself so well. I love it. So Tracy is planning a wedding to a new man and Her little sister Dinah seems to like her ex-husband Dexter better than her new man. 
And Tracy and Dinah go to visit George, who is the guy that she's marrying at a horse stable. And he's wearing brand new clothes. And Tracy basically just doesn't care for that. So she knocks him down and dirties him up. George struggles super fucking hardcore getting on this horse in front of multiple human beings who have no doubt lost all fucking respect for him because it's like, it's not that hard, buddy. So I guess this is the way that the movie is just setting up how little we care about George and his feelings or what a dipshit we think he is. So quickly we move to tabloid journalist Macaulay Mike Connor, played by Jimmy Stewart, and he's walking around with this photographer named Liz, swearing that he's going to tell off his boss, and before he really delivers on that, he's given the assignment of writing a story on socialite Tracy Lord's wedding, like... He really fucking folds like a cheap suit with the whole fucking telling his boss off thing. It just does not happen at all. So he initially wants to turn the job down, but it turns out that his boss has C.K. Dexter Haven as an in with the Lords. And it's revealed to Mike that Dexter was actually Tracy's first husband. And Mike is trying to figure out what Dexter's angle is, basically. And he realizes that he basically just wants to get back at Tracy. And so the three of them, Mike and Dexter and Liz, arrive at the Lord Estate. And Dexter already obviously knows everyone around the place. And Liz and Mike wait in a less used area of the house while, you know, they're gearing up for the interview. So Mike clearly fucking loathes the whole experience. Like, he doesn't like the Lord way of life. It's too snobby and high class for him, apparently. But Mike makes a prank call to uh, Tracy's mother asking for room service. And, you know, obviously it goes over super fucking well. We then see Dexter reveal himself to Tracy and company. And Tracy is obviously super unwelcoming to her ex-husband. But Dexter butters up the sister and mom and... Kind of, like, I don't know if I'd say has them on his side, but he's at least, like, getting them to, like, not be so cold toward him like Tracy is. So he talks about how the journalist and photographer are there wanting to do a story. And, you know, usually I fucking hate golden age Hollywood comedies, but I fucking love this one. It's really fucking solid. So the mother keeps correcting her youngest daughter, Dinah, on her choice of words when she's being improper and it's pretty fucking hilarious. Like, Dinah's just a trip in this movie. I fucking love her. So Dexter shows Tracy an article about her father that she doesn't want to get out. So Basically, the plan is to blackmail Tracy into allowing this story on her wedding, you know? So it's like, basically, he's going to fucking release this awful story about her dad if she doesn't do this wedding story. So Dexter keeps calling Tracy red throughout this film, but it's a black and white movie. So, you know, we just have to go based on his word that she's redheaded. So I've only seen this once before, and I, I must say that I think she ends up with Dexter at the end, but... I wanted her and Mike to end up together so bad, but that's just natural because of my love for Jimmy Stewart. So no one wants her to end up with George. I want to make that clear. Nobody thinks that she should be with her fiance. That's a given. So as soon as Tracy tells them about the reporters, Dinah correctly assesses that it has something to do with their father and some dancer. So Dexter comes back to see the reporters who are still hanging around waiting 
and they want more information on the people involved in the story, like some basic background and what kind of people they are and things like that. And Dinah comes in and puts on a facade and ballet slippers doing this whole bit for the reporters. She's acting legitimately fucking nuts on purpose. And so the reporters pretend not to be actively weirded out by Dinah and Tracy walks in and Tracy sits down and talks with them and we get some solid physical comedy with her offering Mike a cigarette and he like goes to take one and she like pulls the box away and she's not paying attention to him. And it's just, I don't know, it's really amusing watching him like go for it and then she just doesn't let him have one. So Tracy puts on such a fucking fake personality for the reporters as she's like asking them about themselves and she's just trying to like deflect all of the questions about her. So we find out that Liz used to be married, which is something that even Mike didn't realize and Mike works with her pretty regularly. Tracy then asks if Mike and Liz are going together and they get really flustered about it. And to this point, I hadn't really felt much of a romantic energy coming from Liz and Mike. So I was kind of surprised that Tracy was actually kind of right about this. So Tracy leaves the room for a moment and Mike asks Liz exactly who is conducting the interview since, you know, Tracy's been asking all of the fucking questions. So Tracy leads her mother in to meet the reporters and they go outside to meet George and I feel like it's a foregone conclusion that Tracy and George won't end up together even if you've never seen this movie. Like, you can just rest assured that that's the case. So George is just not portrayed favorably at all in this film and it's pretty clear that that's, you know, that's what the viewers want. They want him to be gone and her to figure something else out. So Tracy's father shows up and is naturally confused by Tracy acting like a complete fucking lunatic. And then Dexter walks up and the father wants him gone. And Dexter and Tracy can't help but be at each other's throats left and right. And the whole experience's awkwardness culminates with Tracy accidentally breaking Liz's camera. And I say accidentally in quotes because she clearly like is not that upset that it happened and probably did it deliberately. So Mike goes off to do some research on the family at a library and he's being super fucking weird in this library. Like he's trying to conceal his motives and I get that, but he's also just being downright goofy and I don't know why. So he stumbles upon Tracy there and she's reading his book. Mike also writes short stories in his spare time. And so, you know, she's so captivated by his writing that that all of a sudden, you know, we witness the birth of romantic chemistry right on screen. And so they go out for a walk on the town and Liz seems distraught by the sight of them together. So Mike and Tracy end up at the pool and I, the viewer, am of course repulsed that Mike is about to put on communal swimming trunks. No thanks. Tracy suggests to Mike that he use a spare house she has, and it's not really a welcome offer. He doesn't really like the idea of having to depend on someone like her for something like that. So Dexter shows up and spoils the mood even more than it already was, and Dexter and Tracy argue back and forth, but it's disguised as a conversation with Mike. And Dexter talks to her about, you know, how she drove him to drinking, and 
They tell old stories about each other. It's all very mean-spirited, you know, and it inevitably leads to talking about George. And obviously Tracy says George is the man for her, but Dexter is very critical of them being together. Dexter really breaks down and makes Tracy feel like complete shit about herself and then just leaves. And, you know, later on, George finds the gift from Dexter and it's a model of the boat that Dexter and Tracy took on their honeymoon originally. George basically tells Tracy how wonderful she is, but it's in a really fucking weird incel sort of way. It's like he's telling her that she's perfect as a statue and he worships her. I don't really know much about women, but I would assume that to some, that's not overly romantic and is probably kind of creepy. Later on, as Tracy comes back from the pool, her and her parents talk about not liking the charade that they have to put on for the reporters. And the father says that the papers can say what they like about him and all that jazz, but this is where he draws the line. So Tracy gets annoyed at being told what to do by her dad and generally doesn't seem to like her father anyway. He tries to tell her how to behave and she makes comments about her father's dancer friend and how sick and tired of him she is. Her dad says some mean ass shit back to her and makes her feel bad about herself much like Dexter did earlier. And I've got to say the pacing in this movie is fucking and solid like it keeps going from one great scene to the next and I just love it so Mike starts talking to Tracy and asks her what's wrong but she doesn't really want to spill the beans about what's bothering her and as he leaves she downs a couple of drinks and that night they have some kind of ball or dance party or whatever and Tracy and George are dancing and discussing lovey-dovey things and Mike is such a down-to-earth guy you know he comes and cuts in with Tracy just as her and George are about to leave and Mike and Tracy get to talking and he says some awkward stuff about who all does and does not like George everyone's supposed to be drunk but sometimes even the best actors suck at pretending to be drunk you know so Mike pays Dexter a surprise visit in the early hours of the morning and he's clearly still drunk and Mike just keeps drinking and he asks Dexter if he's still in love with Tracy and he doesn't really get an answer but he keeps talking about Tracy and Dexter isn't really doing much talking since he's sober and he's being given awkward shit to talk about so you know it's like it's starting to show through that through all of this drunk talk Mike says that he's basically kind of into Tracy and Mike says that he's not going to write a story on the wedding but rather on George and Dexter immediately convinces Mike to let him write the story and Mike dictates the story to Dexter as he's writing and then suddenly Tracy and Liz just show up and Mike and Tracy take off in the car and hang out together for a while and they're being flirty with each other by the pool and and Mike tells Tracy that she just can't marry George, you know? He says that they just don't match up. And the discussion gets less lighthearted pretty quick when he says this. And Mike and Tracy talk about their differences, but Mike is kind of drunk, so it quickly comes back to kind words. And Mike seems to be putting her up on this pedestal, and he just thinks that she's wonderful. And she's enamored with the things that Mike says, but she's keeping him at arm's length, pretty much. And they kiss and they run off together, 
And meanwhile, Dexter comes back to the Lords and talks to Liz for a bit. And she explains why she doesn't want to marry Mike. And she says that he's still got a lot to learn and she doesn't want to get in his way for a while. And Dexter says that her approach is pretty risky given the off chance that another girl comes along. So Liz goes upstairs and doesn't really have much to say to that. So George shows up looking for Tracy and is annoyed to see Dexter. And the two men hear Mike singing, which is magnificent. I'm kidding, of course. It's fucking Jimmy Stewart singing, and it's just as bad as you would expect. So he's singing the classic song Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz, which came out the year before this movie. Mike takes Tracy inside, and when he comes back out alone, Dexter hits him before George can, and he says that he felt he'd be better off doing it since George is in better shape than him. And I've noticed what seems to be a complete lack of instrumentation to this point, just like no score whatsoever in this movie. I I really like it. I feel like it's, you know, it's not really a complaint. It's basically basically just like it keeps the film a little more grounded I guess so everyone is pretty hung over the next morning and they keep reacting like people are yelling at them or they react negatively to direct sunlight and it's pretty fucking amusing Dinah and Tracy talk and Dinah reveals that she saw at least some of what happened the night before and Tracy tries to convince Dinah what she saw between Tracy and Mike was a dream or something but I mean I'm assuming Dinah's not really buying it Mike shows up and chats with the girls for a minute and then Dinah leaves them alone and it's important to remember that this is the day of the wedding and things really need to culminate pretty fucking quick here so Tracy needs to figure out what the fuck to do and all of that so Tracy seems mortified about what she did with Mike the night before and she tries to get him to believe it was nothing and he shouldn't tell anyone about it and everyone is proving to be miserable except for Dexter who quit drinking at some point a while back Dexter stops out to talk to Tracy and she's very emotional and she wants to tell him something but she realizes that she needs to tell George first presumably about the night that she had with Mike so George says something about a letter that he sent to her when they talk on the phone and Dexter tells Tracy that he's going to sell the true love which is the boat from their honeymoon and she seems bothered that he would want to do that and so George's letter arrives before George gets there in person and it's a very strongly worded letter about how shocking her conduct was the night before and so basically Tracy is reading George's letter aloud in front of a couple of people and he basically says that what she did fundamentally changed the way he sees her and their relationship and he says that now he only really sees her as a friend so he's basically breaking off the engagement and George walks up sometime before she finishes the letter and she agrees that her conduct was terrible and Mike steps in to tell George that they only kissed a couple of times and went swimming and then he put her on her bed and came back down to see Dexter and George and Tracy then turns it into being offended like asking Mike if she wasn't good enough for him or something and it's like well what the fuck do you want Tracy like what are you going for here do you want George's forgiveness or do you want Mike to like you so Mike explains that Tracy was attractive and enchanting but she was drunk and there are rules about that because Mike is a great fucking guy and he doesn't take advantage of women like that 
Liz is standing there with Tracy, Mike, George, and Dexter, and she acts like everything that happened didn't really bother her. George then tries to get Tracy to agree to stop drinking and change her ways, and she refuses. Tracy decides to break things off with George, saying that she'd make him miserable, basically. So George leaves, and they're trying to figure out what to do with the wedding, since there are a lot of guests already there, ready for the ceremony. And Mike offers to marry Tracy, but she turns him down because of Liz, and she doesn't think that he'd be very happy married to her. Tracy interrupts the beginning of the ceremony to announce that she won't be marrying George, and Dexter is like feeding her lines and suggests that the two of them get remarried instead. And this is a fucking smooth move by Dexter, and luckily Tracy goes for it. And so they have this fucking wedding with the last minute changes, and that is it. She ends up with Dexter. And so praise in this movie, you know, the performances are all top notch. I really like all of the performances. And it's a very seemingly like simplistic plot, but it's got a lot to it, you know? I mean, there's there's a lot to think about. And then, of course, I also enjoy the light humor, and the three lead actors are fucking phenomenal. I love them all. So, criticism, I would just say that I wanted Tracy to end up with Mike still, even though I know it wasn't a good idea. I just still wanted it. So, a little bit of trivia. So, the original play, starring Hepburn, ran for 417 performances. It made over 1 million in box office sales and later went on to tour, performing another 250 times and making over $750,000 in sales. The film was shot in eight weeks and required no retakes. Catherine Hepburn deferred her salary for 45% of the profits. Howard Hughes helped pony up the dough for the stage production rights as well as the movie rights. Cary Grant wanted top billing despite Hepburn being the protagonist and Stewart having more lines. They agreed to his demand because Hepburn had recently been labeled box office poison in the years leading up to the film's release. Cary Grant was paid $137,000. Hepburn got $75,000 plus $175,000 in selling the play's movie rights. And Jimmy Stewart got a measly $15,000. So info and ratings, we have a runtime of 112 minutes. Budget, $914,000. Worldwide gross, $3.3 million. IMDb rating, 7.9. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 100%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 93%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. This is a fucking classic. I absolutely love it. There's so much to like about it. All right, everyone. Well, that is the episode for today. I really appreciate you uh, stopping by, as always. And I guess, uh, you know, if you have any suggestions or requests, obviously just send them my way and, and maybe I'll do them. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.